and welcome to the Glacially Musical Podcast, a podcast that I don't know what it is. Again, we are once, once again, we are joined by Keefe of Ghost Cult Magazine. How are you doing this, this whatever it is? Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't think before I spoke, and I'm still yeah, not. It's evening where you are. It's almost evening where I am. It's okay. You're drinking grown-up beverage. I'm drinking a grown-up beverage. Times are better now that I'm talking to you. Hey, I appreciate that. They, things are always better when I'm talking to you because my kid uh, literally told me before we hit record she was going to be a jerk today. All right. Well, geez. She's learned from the best. Oh, well, then okay. I learned it by watching you, as the PSA used to say. Oh, my God. I love that commercial. Where, who taught you how to do this? I learned it by watching you. You all right? I learned it from watching you. Obviously, we're talking about Metallica. Followed by a Dare commercial or McGruff the Crime Boat Dog. The best part about that was those commercials were frequently on in St. Louis. What's Channel 24, which was KNLC, Reverend Larry Rice's channel. This is a guy that I I don't know what his deal was apart from being a hyper-Christian, but I believe he like was like a real Christian, not like an American Christian. Shots fired, I know. But he would like fight against stadium funding because he's like, hey, we got homeless. Why are we doing this? I'm not against that. We are having a similar issue. I am now in the Bay Area. Uh, They have brand new buildings for basketball. 49ers are only in their building like 10, 15 years, Levi Stadium. The Oakland A's are battling with with Oakland about a, a stadium, and they're threatening to leave not sure it's realistic. Oakland is doing a lot of social services and outreach because let's face it, the, the Bay Area has got some major issues uh, for a city this size. We just have a lot of, you know, social issues. Well, and frankly, when it comes to trying. stadium funding, I I actually, you know, because clearly this is why we're here. <laughs> I, uh, I I'm no longer sure where I fall on that line. In 2011, I would have told you I am definitely down for governmental funding it in 2021 i don't know because we lost the rams in 2017 and our city didn't crumble we're still fine so and the soccer stadium we have going in is not is is not government funded it is privately funded for the most part i believe if i'm not mistaken the rams were the first franchise to have permanent seat licenses psls correct where they make you pay for the right to buy the tickets that are yours. I grew up, as I have said before, with Giants season football tickets, New York Giants. And it was the only luxury we had. We were otherwise pretty Wait, boring. wait, wait. The Rams weren't first. They were the first non-expansion team to do it. Okay, that's fair. Um, still horrifying. They're oh, a, yes. an old school NFL team. They have moved several times. Fine. If they didn't feel in an allegiance to St. Louis after everything, Super Bowls and Super Bowl losses and tremendous fandom that they built and i don't think la is a place that people really give a shit about football at all like they really it's a thing to take your corporate clients to it's not a thing that people make time the game started 10 in the morning because of eastern time football time zones for the networks how are you going to get drunk by 10 in the morning and i mean feel terrible does that sound like a challenge i mean i could it, it that is a challenge i mean that's if you're a soccer fan it's not a challenge because we start getting drunk at six in the morning because we're watching but yeah but i only do it at bars because i feel creepy if i do it at home that's just weird 
I think, yeah. I don't think I, so. Although, I, in fairness, I haven't done that in 10 years. I don't feel like I'm drinking alone. I feel like we're drinking together. I'm never drinking alone. There's, You know, it's like Mitch Hedberg said. When I'm going to shave, I always say, I'm going to go shave too. Because someone else in the world is shaving at the same time. That guy was great. I saw him a month before he died. That's crazy. And I saw a guitar wolf two days before Billy died. Wow. Uh, then I saw King Diamond next. No one died. Please don't die. Yeah. Had anyone um, in King Diamond died, though, I was going to see in sync next. Oh, you. <laughs> Let's move a little forward here. So where did we leave off last week? We are in episode two of the Metallica 90s something recap analysis something something there's a book coming out metallica the 2495 book put out by an actually pretty good reputable author who's going to analyze the cultural impact that metallica has made on the music world which is what we have been doing now in our second week so um you can get it for free here you can get it for free i actually am going to probably read and review the book but um i will read it but i also have a library Ben Apatoff is his name, I believe, and he writes for, he's written for Metal Injection and other websites. Um, I see a cat in the background. Um, oh, yeah. I ain't superstitious when a black cat crosses my path. Hello. This is Gigi. Gigi. So, Metallica, we set up the whole series. By talking about the 80s a little and talking about the lead up, the recording of, the build up to the Black Album. Metallica went from an unknown borderline poverty stricken band to making millions of dollars and owning their own homes and buying fancy sports cars to selling out arenas without a musical song on the radio and very little pop culture awareness at all, if any, possibly none, except for maybe Kirk Hammett as a guitar hero because guitar nerds. Um, you know what we didn't talk about at all and probably should have mentioned? How much longer would Metallica have existed without the Black Album? I mean, I think they still, I think they weren't going to stop being them. So let's say it's not a question of the Black Album. Let's just say they don't do the Black Album. And they just do another Injustice for All with a better sound on the bass. And they continue that vein. They're still probably the greatest band ever. They're still un-F-withable, um, child company included. And, um, you know, they have a flawless entry into the music world. They helped perfect a sound. They didn't create it, but they helped perfect it. And they still would be right there with there would be a big four still. That just wouldn't be such a prevalent thing. There wouldn't be a Metallica 3D movie. There wouldn't have been Metallica festivals. They would have just been Metallica, the thrash metal band. I don't think they would have necessarily broken up any sooner than, I mean, like if they had just plateaued and been like an arena band, I mean, there were plenty of bands. Um, uh, Blue October, Red, the band are very impressive, big bands that play theaters and bigger venues sell out every time they headline, play festivals all over the world, sell lots of records, do lots of streams, do lots of fun, inventive merch. Um, and they're not getting any bigger than they already are. You know, So I'm just trying to think of like to forecast, you could not have predicted what, what happened with the Black Album. Even if you had sold somebody in 1989 or, or 90, 
Metallica is going to sell out, which they didn't, but they're going to sell out and make a very middle of the road rock metal with a little bit of thrash and heavy metal. And it's going to be the biggest thing ever. No one would have believed you. No one. Sorry, I was trying to get my kid to feed the kittens. I apologize. Uh, this has been on mute, but now, anyway. Okay. Sorry. The, the just idea. Let me talk. I'm gonna go. Like you know, I'm gonna go on and on if you don't stop. Oh yeah, me. I'll let you go because I mean, I I, I will interrupt because I want to talk too. Yeah, of course. And the thing about the blackout, the thing about Metallica, you look back to Justice. They did well on Justice. They did well on Master of Puppets. The Black Album, as as I said in last week's episode, installment as it were, I really believe that Bob Rock was brought in by Elektra to kind of make a hit. And then, of course, they pulled the lever and they got all sevens. That's the weird part. I don't think anybody expected that. I think they made Unforgiven and definitely nothing else matters with radio in mind and trying to get some airplay. You will never convince me otherwise. Kirk Hammett doesn't even play guitar on Nothing Else Matters, which Kirk Hammett is at that time was at the time an extraordinarily uncommercial guitarist. He was not somebody that was going to bring in your average viewer. Uh, nothing else, or I'm sorry, Fade to Black, first solo, notwithstanding. And, and then it hit. And then what Jason Newstead described when he talked about the Black album in the behind the music i believe it was or one of the 1857 metallica documentaries i have been watching on youtube for the past forever because nobody in my family likes me and i gotta kill time i didn't even i didn't even get a face on that oh there it is there's the face okay but the way he described it was we wanted to go back into the studio we wanted to keep working but we had a phenomenon and the Black Album phenomenon, I think, is only surpassed by the touring phenomenon that they created. Thoughts? I, yes. First, you know, um, undoubtedly, one doesn't happen without the other. Like, the success of Metallica doesn't seem to happen without, you know, the, the underground Metallica gave way to the commercial Metallica. And, you know, like there's there's definitely a correlation. I'm not 100% sure, um, you know, realistically, um, I'm not 100% sure it all goes down. Like, even then, like I said, they just, I do think that Lars actually, Lars and James kind of helped pick Bob because they've talked openly about the jealousy they felt like why don't our records sound like a Motley Crue record even if we wrote differently like they really deconstructed the albums of that time Hysteria Danzig One very dry big drum sound but very dry and lo-fi but big drum sound uh Dr. Feelgood I I don't love Motley Crue but that album is a banger. It's all bangers, actually, except a couple of tracks. And the sound of that record is phenomenal for not a great band of players or singers. And um, really, except one guy who's the least likable guy of any of them. 
And I'm trying to think like the cult. We discussed them last week a little. Right. Um, they really were separating themselves from the thrash metal underground. They really were separating themselves even from Iron Maiden and Judas Well, if you Priest think about Metallica, the big four, we even, the big four gets a lot of talk and ink, as it should. But, I mean, let's look at the big four as, as constructed. You have Anthrax, who's barely a theater band, regardless of what you think of them. They used to be a headliner in arenas by themselves. Bef- the late 80s and early 90s, they were headlining arenas. Okay. Then you have Slayer, barely an arena band. Or, I'm sorry, barely a theater band. No, I'm sorry. Strong theater band. I apologize. Strong theater band. 2,000, 3,000 seaters. And that's all they ever really were. Well, they did they- arenas and amphitheaters on the entire three-year farewell tour. So that doesn't that's count. Admirable. It, admirable, yes. And I saw them on that tour in a theater. In an amp- excuse me. Amp- and I saw them in an amphitheater. Amphitheater. And the same one where uh, Guns N' Roses caused a riot. So one of 700 different amphitheaters it could have been. But then you have, but again, farewell card. That's a different deal. One farewell card, two amazing lineup. So... Then you have Megadeth, who has headlined amphitheaters and arenas a couple of times, but has been relegated largely to headliner of mini festivals and opener for Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath for the past, and Motley Crue for the past 20 years. So then you have Metallica, who headlines stadiums. So when you think about the big four, it's really kind of inappropriate. The big one. Yeah, it's really kind of inappropriate even to consider Metallica in there. The Big Four is not the best thrash metal bands. It is the best-selling, most popular thrash metal bands. Just for a little more context, because I will defend this band till I die, Anthrax had two platinum singles before the Black Album ever was recorded. Was one of them I'm the Man? One of them is I'm the Man, which I agree. Not the not the finest moment that one of no. the tracks remembered for. No, 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 no. When I was seventeen and heard it on Attack of the Killer Bees, I hated it. But now that I'm forty five, and it's all dad jokes, I, I I love that song. Any song that has heavy metal dad jokes told by the hip hop stage, I'm in. Right, heavy metal dad jokes supposed to have the Beastie Boys on it. Has the members of Anthrax imitating the Beastie Boys? The singer is playing drums. Hava Nagila, the Jewish folk song of every wedding party and bar mitzvah is in the main riff. Um, there's also another riff in there that I forgot that they put in. That's like another religious theme that might be a Christmas song. Has like a little bit in there musically. Um, it's hilarious and fun. It's, it was an unlikely hit. The video was everywhere. The video was on MTV constantly, constantly. Uh, then they, because of the hype of that record, they rushed out to do their next record, which is not as good, State of Euphoria. I highly recommend the Anthrax. First of all, the Anthrax live stream was excellent. Um, would like some more deep cuts, but they did play some. And they haven't played a show in two years, so I figured they were going to play the same set list they always play, which has been the same set list mostly for the last, since Joey has come back in, 10 years. And I will also say, Bring the Noise is flawlessly incredibly great and it never fails it is an incredible it was a great it's a it's a cover 
It's not their song, but they kind of helped make it their song. They drove so many people into rap, into hip hop, and into socially conscious, smart hip hop. You can't calculate how many like headbanging metal people didn't really talk about, listen to rap. Maybe they heard a pop rap song or something. Beastie Boys, you know, King of Rock, Run DMC, Bismarcky, Rest in Peace. And then they heard Bring the Noise and they're like, oh, oh my. And, and you got the relatability between hip hop, the hardness of hip hop and the hardness of metal and the realness of, of the streets and real hip hop culture and metal. And that's, you know, this is this big, you know, every other band that followed is because of this. And that was um, the first time that happened. You know, you can talk about rap rock with Run DMC and Aerosmith, but I mean, I love Run DMC, don't get me wrong, but they're a party band. They weren't the reality rap as they described it later. And so it was a very cool moment. Also got to give, since we're talking about that for, for a moment, love the, the version of Slam with Biohazard. Love that. Uh, the entire Judgment Night soundtrack is basically my second favorite or third, second favorite movie soundtrack ever beside The Crow. It's like I have not time. heard it. I've actually not. Oh heard it. my goodness! We ought to. I know. I, I'm surprised too. That's it's on vinyl now. I know it? record store Colored vinyl. I had it in my hand. I didn't buy it. Oh, brutal! It's so good. I think I bought it's, Dri that day. That's okay. I forgive you. Dri is great. It's four great. of a kind. Um, Dri four of a kind original pressing. So. Yeah. Helmet and House of Pain, Booyah Tribe and Faith the More far and away the best song on that thing. Cypress Hill twice, Cypress Hill with Pearl Jam and Cypress Hill with Sonic Youth. Uh, Delta Funky Homo Sapien and, and, uh, you know, uh, so many great rappers. Slayer's on there with Ice-T, funny enough, in not doing a rap song. They do a punk song, which is very Slayer and Ice-T of them. Um, Run DMC and Living Color. Just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And Onyx and uh, Onyx and uh, Biohazard. So Metallica, 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 Metallica. They, we covered last episode. We will recap. Maybe we should do that at the top of everyone so we set ourselves. We recap. We, they headlined arenas, took over, you know, sort of transitioned from opening. Once they opened for Ozzy in that arena tour, they went right to headline their own arena shows and festivals in the world. Before that, they had not. So 86, Cliff passes, Jason comes in, 598 EP, we did that a little. Uh, Injustice for All, incredible. Tour, tour, tour. Okay, what we've done this extreme thing. We're now doing arenas. What is the next thing? Did they make a conscious decision to be kind of commercial and get more, you know, popular and be a little more mainstream in the middle of the road? There was nothing to compare it to. There was no Enter Sandman that was a radio hit for a metal band. The heaviest song by Judas Priest or the most commercial song by Judas Priest or Ozzy is not comparable to Enter Sandman or Unforgiven or Nothing Else Matters or Wherever I May Roam. Uh, they're just not. They're just not in the same league. They're Metallica's heavier just more aggressive, darker, tuned down, should not have been a hit on radio the way it was, should not have transformed the mainstream rock fans. And they did become kind of a rock band. I don't have a problem you know, with it. I don't think that. And, you know, I've heard that so many times. I feel like they became more of a traditional metal band. Okay. You know, closer to Quiet Riot than, say, Slayer. Although not clo really close to either. 
But, you know, when you talk about the tour, sorry, I'm burping. Burp away. You know, we get to the tour and the, on the, the, on the black album tour, who's the opener? I'm trying to remember. I didn't see them. Oh, they just did a night with Metallica for three hours. Yes. Three hours and 15 minutes plus a 20 minute movie. Now here they played St. Louis. Because I'm everything in St. Louis focused until I moved to Philadelphia. Then it's then I'm going to become born and raised Philadelphia. I'll be basically the Fresh Prince at that point. So, in November 24th, 1991, which I believe was Thanksgiving weekend, they played the St. Louis Arena. Fun fact: the St. Louis Arena did not host that many concerts, but they played Enter Sandman, Creeping Death, Harvester of Sorrow, Welcome Home, Sanitarium, Sad but True. Wherever I May Roam, bass solo, Through the Never, Unforgiven, Justice Medley, drum solo, guitar solo, Four Horsemen, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Fade to Black, Whiplash. Whew, that's 16 songs, some of them around 12 minutes. Encore, Master of Puppets, short version, which never should have happened. Play or play nothing at all. I hate it. Uh, followed by Seek and Destroy, which was about a 20-minute track on that tour, which was unnecessary. Could have played all of Four Horse. Could have played all of Master Puppets. I'm gonna say. They have played the 19, 20, 25, 30-minute version of Seek and Destroy way too much. I love the song. I love the song way too much. So then they come back with Encore number two. One, Last Caress, Am I Evil, Battery. So you do the numbers, that's a 25-minute encore. And it's the second be a great one. show for any other band that includes two covers. Right. And then they followed up with Encore number three, Stone Cold Crazy. Now, when we talk about this tour, I'm going to point out, then they came back to St. Louis six months later at Riverport Amphitheater and played uh, not as many songs. Uh, oh, they had an opener that night. Metal Church opened. Cool, very good band. But, I mean, think underrated. about that. A hit. I mean, St. Louis. I love. I love my city. Don't get me wrong. Apart from you know extraordinarily corrupt officials, but we have never been the kind of city where Metallica would hit us twice in a year. They but hit everywhere twice in a year, though. Nothing personal. Uh, I mean, I know. I, happy that's for St. What I'm Louis. Saying. They were able to sell. How many? How many seats does that arena have? Eighteen thousand, or did have? The the arena had probably about thirteen or fourteen for a concert, and Riverport is twenty. So imagine that they sold thirty five, forty thousand tickets in the general area. That is a B market. B market in six months. In six months, on a record that just became a hit, their first big hit record. And then they came back in ninety four. They came back everywhere. I mean, and then in 96, and then in 98. And I mean, we, again, we are the 20th largest city in America. You could do, on a good day, you could do a 20-date tour of the United States and not hit us. Yeah, yeah. I've talked to some bands from the area. They decried the lack of big, big tours, but also that they claim Foster's a better, like, tighter scene. Um... So we did the Black Album release. We did the big hoopla. We did the radio impact. We did the they go on tour. They go on tour and just slay shit down. Everything bigger, better merch, better merch options, fan club, 
unbelievable shit, uh, start headlining European festivals by themselves, becoming like the headline, the Saturday headliner. Um, and it's unreal to me. Like, again, I felt vindicated. There was like a few months I was in community college in 1992 at the height of this shit. And I was like, I can't believe that I'm seeing people wear pushead damaged justice shirts who definitely were not fans four years ago. I'm not calling them posers. I'm just saying they sought out this merch. They became diehard fans. I'm not, this is why they're rich because these they mint new fans. Like I said, the black album sells 6,000 copies a week. And that total is going to go up when they re-release the new one because they just gets, they just have the same, uh, it's like a book with an ISBN number, the VIN number of the whatever, like a car, the VIN number of the album, the album catalog number is going to stay the same. So that's going to just. <laughs> not buying. I'm not buying. I know we discussed it. It's fine. I, now, I you, know, you talk about seeing the pus head shirts on these people, right? I can name names. I won't because I think it's creepy. But I could name names of cheerleaders in my high school because I can remember being in my American history course in 1992. I guess it would have been 91. 91, 92. 1991, 91, 92. No, I guess it would have been, yeah, it would have been 92 probably in summer. I can remember seeing cheerleaders wearing Metallica tour shirts. And, you know, four years previous, not even four years, three years previous and in junior high, only the stoner kids wore Metallica shirts. And I mean, that change is to call it seismic is an understatement. It's, it's basically an atomic bomb hitting the landscape and mm. seeing, and it was weird for me. Cause I mean, I wasn't as mature as you at 22 at that point, I was only 17. I don't know how mature I was. I know how mature I was at 22 and it was, it wasn't, but I mean, I was even far less at 17. I mean, I was 17, horribly immature, going through my, 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 my purple haze and lots of other stuff that nobody wants to hear about. So I was angry. I was angry that all of a sudden cheerleaders are now into my bands, or at least the one. So it was, it was hard to deal with for a long time. And I think that's a, that's a big part of why I just rejected the Black Album outright. Okay. At first, I really enjoyed it you know, really enjoyed seeing the videos. It's like, oh, wow, metal in the daytime. And then it became, oh, God, Master, or Enter Sandman again? I think I hit the fatigue at the end of 92, early 93. I hit the fatigue then on the TV end and, like, pop radio. And it's like, the next hour, Michael Jackson and Metallica and something else. So, you know, Taylor Dane, like... <laughs> yeah like that was the new york some of the new york city the more commercial stuff so yeah and i, um, I can, you know when my stepsister who had gotten into country last year because it became popular who was into vanilla ice the year before who was into mc hammer the year before who was into delight the year before heard hey they groove it i'm the still in, in the heart I can i'm still i'm still into delight and Digital Underground, mm-hmm. R.I.P. Shock G. Mm-hmm. But super sad. I uh, actually got a copy of Sex Packets on Swedish vinyl. Wow. 
it was cheaper than anywhere else. So I bought it. I got it for 25 bucks shipped. So uh, I would have, I mean, I would have bought vinyl from anywhere, but I wanted an OG pressing. Not the point. Point was, you know, all of a sudden my stepsister goes from listening to top 40 to now my band is top 40. And she's like, oh, can I borrow that Metallica album? Right. right. Everybody wanted to know. I, like, um, I, hate, I hate you, Diane. There was an exponential growth. There was the experience of getting to see them. So I had been to arena shows. Let's talk about my personal experience briefly. Um, I got none on this. And I tend to make it too much about me and everything I've been told. So I mean, so do I, because I love myself. My first shows were actually, true. my first shows were actually like jazz shows with my mother and some other things. Uh, my first arena shows were Rush, Yes, and Kansas. Um in big venues, which changes your, if you see Rush with laser lights in 1985 and 86, it just changes you. Uh, I still kind of didn't really know a lot of progressive rock fans and even Yes, seeing Yes in a big arena, I didn't really like, oh, other people like Yes. And then I went to the performing arts high school in 87 and other people, they were like, dude, you like Yes? They saw me with like a Yes patch on my black denim jacket. And my Asia patch that's on my battle vest now from 86. I saw Asia um, <laughs> in the heat of the moment. And, uh, you know, I, it, it was, it did get me more friends who were metal fans, which was cool. I, I did, I didn't think so much in terms of posers. I kind of, I didn't feel like a poser, but I always felt like some, not in metal, but like I definitely was a tourist in hardcore. I loved hardcore music and bands. I wasn't a hardcore kid. I had friends who were into hardcore, took me to shows. And I, again, one year, it was like, yo, why did you wear that Injustice for All shirt? Well, I wear that shirt every day. Zip that hoodie up, tuck that long hair under your Yankee hat, Keefe. You're going to get punched. In, you want to get punched in the face? I'm getting punched in the face every day by my dad. I don't want to get punched in the face at this, at this show. So from that to I snuck into the Ritz, which is now Webster Hall, and I saw Exodus and SOD, which was ridiculous. Um, ridiculous, just ridiculous as a show. It was just mind-blowing to see. I uh, wish I had seen Paul. I didn't get, they kicked Paul out. I saw Zetra, who I love. Um, and I'm interested to hear this record they're making now, Persona Non Grata. But, um, you know, it was startling. We did feel vindicated for a minute. For a minute, we felt vindicated. Like, oh, we were right. And then it doesn't matter whether you're right or not, because what happens is when your band becomes adopted by everybody, you find reasons, you find fault with your band. They're not your band anymore. They belong, they don't belong to you. They never really, they belong to you as much as any band you feel ownership of. Pearl Jam fans are known for this. They adore Pearl Jam. I definitely have Pearl Jam albums I love, love the early stuff. I appreciate them more now that I went back and I listened to some of the other stuff that I had missed. But honestly, I would not consider myself to be a Pearl Jam diehard, but can they go out and put on a three hour show? It'd be great. Of course, um, I, you know. Um, no, I, I completely agree. And that the fact that they, I think the fact that they toured for three years 
just probably doubled or tripled the impact of that record. Because we're talking about a time when, oh, if you're in town saying, you know, sponsored by Keishi, well, you got to call in Keishi. And this was a time when you could buy out, you could buy tickets before the show. You, you know, you weren't giving up, you weren't cutting off your left foot in order to buy a ticket. And that's, you know, when I saw Iron Maiden for the first time in 1992, same era, I bought my ticket the day of the show. It was 15 bucks. I mean, 15 bucks was princely at the time. Thankfully, I did have enough money for uh, a pack of reds, but that's besides the point. Right. Tickets were a lot cheaper. Um, Even still. um, So, you know, at what point does it get like? So Metallica is doing occasional outdoor shows in Europe and some in America, but mostly not, mostly arenas. And then the big tour, 92, 1992, Metallica, Guns N' Roses. Was it 92? Faith No More. Yeah, it was 92. And here's a good story. I had never bought tickets before over the phone. I had only bought the tickets in person, we talked about this last show, at places like Ticketron or whatever you guys had. You go wait online at dawn, You the tickets open at nine, you are against the whole world that is also on tickets lined up somewhere for a ticket place somewhere in the world. Also people calling in on the phone, but not as much back then, no internet. Can I, can I tell a quick Metallica story? Sure. I waited in line in my neighborhood that I live now in 1996 to buy my tickets to see Metallica for the first time on the, on the load tour mm-hmm. at the time, that was the Metro ticks location. That was before Ticketmaster had, uh, had insidiously wormed its way in here. And uh, that location was a street side records. And now it's a Qdoba. Rough. Um, so I would choose the old ways, but yeah, we know. had, I think it was a little more, you really had a, you know, look, I love technology and I love the internet. You had to want it bad. You had to want it more than the next person. You could get up early, wait online, be first in line and not get a ticket sometimes. There definitely were tickets scalped and sold that were be, you know, back then. Definitely wasn't bots, but it was definitely people, nefarious people. As soon as they realized it was a market, they exploited it. Yeah, it, when the... The lineup I was in, they checked. I mean, they checked us. You had to drop your ID. It was yeah. everything. And I probably so, paid for those tickets in cash because, yeah. I mean, I was 19. We, I had never, me and my small circle of best friends had never bought tickets that were not in person with cash. I had to work. I was working at Bagels on the Square in the West Village in New York City, for those that remember and my mom gave my best friend at the time her credit card info, but not the card. Not what we, he was like family, so we trusted him. But not her expiration date. Oh. So he gets through to get Metallica and GNR tickets. Doesn't have the expiration date. He also had never bought anything over the phone with a credit card. My mom said yes to this to let us buy five or six tickets on her credit, which is was a luxury back then we were not doing that great but yeah that's probably about 90 bucks (laughs) i'm sorry i don't don't laugh because you know your situation no 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 so i just laugh when you think about how much those tickets probably would cost now today yeah i mean for two of the you know if foo fighters and pearl jam ever do a co-headline tour that's what the tickets will cost Um, because you're going to start at 200 for sure 
Um, so he gets through, doesn't have the expiration date, has to hang up to recall because home phones, dial tone, rotary phone, one phone. Maybe he had a push button. Gets my mom, gets the number, calls back in, tickets are sold out. Of course they are. Now, so, you, and we you didn't even aware. try to go anywhere else at that point. There was one place we could go, Giant Stadium, the old Giant Stadium in the Meadowlands in New York. And we didn't go. And we were crying all the tears. We did end up going to a lot more shows after that. And I was very on point from that point forward about buying tickets, having a ticket agenda, getting up at 5 a.m. when I'm not a morning person, not drinking the night before to buy tickets, planning a year, like out months in advance, what was going on sale, when, where, having a shared calendar at a time with no email, Gmail or nothing. And we would just trade a crapper keeper back and forth with each other with a handwritten calendar of our shows every month. And um, and until alcohol and drugs got into play, I never missed a show. Now, just real quick, guess where I saw that tour? Where did you see that tour? Nowhere. It didn't come to town. Okay. Guns <laughs> N' Roses was banned. Mm. Oh, GNR. And you um, know what really bugs me about that particular show that where the St. Louis fans rioted? G- GNR had played for like two and a half hours. Yeah, it's just whatever happened at the end. Just Axel's a douche. I mean, like, there's no question. Well, he completely is, but it was two and a half hours. He did a lot worse thing. The, the the Montreal thing is so much worse because I know. I'm look. I want to complain about my city and yeah. you know, not Montreal right now. We'll get to them later. Look, look, I mean, we can discuss that fact that James almost died. Like, let's get honestly. You uh, keep diverting from my my look. We had sorry. one riot. Okay, we had one. Freaking riot! Ever. Let me enjoy this riot, goddamn you, Keith. I I saw I'm a sorry. broken chair once at an at a restaurant. I'm sorry, I'm I'm yelling at my town because the hardcore town, hardcore. No, it, it was the Real Rock Cafe. It was open. No, I'm saying until... these guys are tough, tough guys. Okay, unpredictable, crazy. Man. Yeah, I mean, two and a half hours are like, all right, let's tear this place apart. Okay, great. what do you think it is about Missouri and St. Louis and? uh that makes people aggro to destroy shit and go riot if they don't get their way. At that, time, at that time, we had 350 murders a year in our city. That is a very high number, sir. Very high number for a really small city. So, you know, we were just always ready. And, and at that time, and even now, of course, the media was like, you're going to get shot. So it's like, well, we're going to get shot anyway. Let's tear Riverport down. Mm. But, you know, it's like that scene in... In uh, in in Jay and Silent in Clerks too, where you know Dante and Randall are talking and they're driving up and he goes, "What are you gonna do on your last day?" And he's like, "I'm gonna go to work and go and move." He's like, "If I were you, I'd write in really large letters on the side of the building." Why? To let him know you were there, man. And I think that's just what it was. Just everybody wanted to let him know we were there. As we record this, Clerks three was optioned this week. I know. Online cinema. It's like, Kevin Smith, please keep staying alive and tell the stories of my life. And mine too. And, 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 and Randall's back. Randall is back. He's, uh, uh, Jeff Anderson is back. He's back. Uh, Marilyn Gigliotti, Veronica no, no Quirks, is in the new movie. She's going to oh, show up. I, I, I hope I, she I shows smell... up with, like, Dante's baby. Oh, my God. I am Elias seeing is a Veronica. In it. I'm seeing a Veronica. Of, of Veronica Becky. Um, Becky beat down. I hope so. Oh my god, I would love that. Anyway, that's really wrong. I would not love that. I'm drinking. Be- Becky's a Jedi Knight now. She might fuck shit up. Um, 
Good point. Anyway, moving on from Clerks. So, so the riot, right? So, so they didn't come to your town. I'm deeply sorry. Metallica GNR sells out everywhere. Oh, I hated GNR at that point. I Faith No More is on Angel Dust, rocking the shit. And as you know, they're that they're very cool. I love that album. It's like one of my favorite. Top I'm the only albums. one. Look, I'm. I, I don't try to be contrarian, but it just ends up I know. You just like what you like. It's okay. And I mean, there's about anyway. Moving on. A tremendous bill. A tremendous, Completely. tremendous bill. And it should have been gorgeous and lovely and stupendous the whole way. And the two bands could not have been more disalike. GNR was melting down and breaking up slowly. Metallica was getting richer and tighter and more professional in everything they did. And again, James nearly dies. I don't know how many lead belly, who else was critically injured on stage and lived. Lead belly died. Uh, obviously, we've had a lot of murders at shows, but it's Fraley electrocuted. Yeah, yeah. No, electrocuted is the wrong term. Shocked. Shocked. Electrocuted means killed. Actually, that's true. Shocked during shock me, perhaps. Correct. Um, that is where that is the that was the inspiration for the song. Actually, it's possible. Uh, uh, yeah, he he nearly died getting getting shocked. Uh, other than James, that, James is is set on fire and heart, third degree burns over most of his body. It was horrific. And he lived. And not only did he live, he came right back to go on. He stayed on. He wound up back on that tour later. Uh, so he had, that tour stopped, I guess. They didn't finish the tour. And Metallica just booked a string of dates six weeks later and went Wait, on tour. That ended the tour? I thought they just like took six weeks off and rescheduled. <laughs> I don't think they finished that tour. I'll have to double check that. Um, mm. You know, um, Either way, they went. He went right back. He healed up. He went right back to touring. Arm in a cast, burned down to the bone. Came back, obviously better than ever. John Marshall, the guitar tech, filled in for him. That's why I say drum techs and guitar techs learn the band songs you're teching for because you never know you will get to go play a show or be on a tour. Um. So yeah, um, the tour ends. Metallica goes right on trucking. James gets his mojo back, gets his health back. They continue to tour into 90, end of 92, into 93, which will take us into the epic 93 tours that end up yielding Binge and Purge. We should take a break right now and then talk about Binge and Purge. Agreed. Now, the, what's we're, and we're back. What's really amazing to me about, you know, we, you bring up Binge and Purge, and we had had a conversation about live albums a couple of weeks ago, and big, big fan of live albums, because, you know, I started wrong. And the Binge and Purge set, that, the, the Seattle portion of that box set gave me the really strong compunction to be able to glom on to something from that set and just absolutely love it. But when you we're not talking about that necessarily. The, but that and I'm that's also why I bought oh damn it. Sorry, I'm 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 gassy. I'm always gassy. I'm old, I'm dying, whatever. And Please don't die. The, it you get older, you get burpier. I'm sorry, people. I'm old and burpy. And moving back to binge and perch, I go back to that and that's an amazing set. It was the first box set I ever purchased, actually. The very first one. And that was 
amazing. It just a truly amazing release. And that, but that release yielded what fifteen singles, give or take. And I heard those singles on Casey's Headbangers Ball, or not? I'm sorry, Casey's Monday Night Metal, which only ever broadcast on Tuesdays, and you know Headbangers Ball and primetime videos and whatever the shit the Sunday show was called. Metallica didn't wasn't just a one-shot deal. It's truly amazing to think about that. You have a band that seemingly comes from nowhere. For your average mainstream fan, all of a sudden this band pops up because they weren't paying attention to the stoner kids, the bad kids wearing the shortest straw t-shirts on the bus in the back seats. So for them, oh, it's a brand new band. And what did what did the what did the black album sell around the original run? Probably about twenty million. It went platinum pretty fast. Out of the you know what? Eventually sold over thirty. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it is the biggest selling out rock album of the SoundScan era, and arguably it goes back and forth between one and two and three. Shania Twain's big record from the early '90s was the big, the second big SoundScan record, and there's a Garth Brooks record that everybody has of Broken Wind or whatever. That is the like the thing that put him on the map, which I think he's on tour doing that album right now. Um, so yeah, they were enormous. I love Binge and Purge. We talked a lot about this in the past on another podcast, but I love Binge and Purge. You claim it is not a perfect live album. I think it is a perfect live album, but you disqualified. Had any one of those set. concerts been released by themselves? I think you could have just bought the CDs. No, you couldn't. You could not. You could only buy the box set. And if you want, I can go grab my set out of the closet. It's all good. I had it. I had it. I'll I'll probably buy it again someday with a DVD or Blu-ray. I said who was going to do that 25 years. It's going to have an anniversary in two more years. Holy crap, if they release a box set of that, that would be awesome. I'm going to buy all of it because I'm an idiot. Um, See, I thought more portions of that were going to be on the Black Album box set. I thought San Diego. It should have kind of be. They, I, I mean, they might, I mean, I think it's going to have a whole live album of different It shows. does. It has the Russia concert. Yeah, the Russia, which is before the Black Album actually came out that summer. Right, but I mean, I can't listen to that knowing what happened in the crowd. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, we're not going to talk about what happened. We're, we're not going to talk about it. But here's an interesting thing. Um, so Binge and Purge, do you remember the MTV contest around Binge and Purge where they sent fans to Metallica's HQ here in San Francisco? It was Metallica and the Metallitones. Right. And they gave them, or are you thinking about garaging? Maybe. No, no, it was, they, uh, Ricky Rackman called those two dudes the Metallitones. Oh, that's right. That's right. So they yes i remember that i rode bikes around san francisco with jay with jason i watched that 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 the vhs copy i made of that with yeah less than pants nice they were given they were given each a box set they were given a road case of metallica gear from that tour and Kirk and one of Kirk's Kirk's guitars. guitars before he really had a signature guitar. So they got an actual Kirk played owned guitar, 
holy fuck dude they got road cases set lists could you imagine because that guitar that he was given one out it's got at least a 20 percent possibility of having been played on the black album sure yeah he didn't have a lot of guitars back then he had less for injustice but yeah that's absolutely he probably had 20 or 30 at that moment if that many probably less now and on that tour he had crazy money so he bought like 200 yeah well they also got endorsed at that point um, right well he was endorsed on the tour mm-hmm. but i mean yeah he probably used that that was probably that could have been possibly his first esp kh1 yeah, that's the time yeah um, think about that for a minute imagine he also got his own crybaby walk that time because i bought one no i thought that was much no that was much later i think Wasn't it's it? about right at, i mean within that couple of years because that just i mean i want one don't get me wrong that was later. i mean we should discuss at least for a second about the transition of kurt Hammett to a guy who co-founded exodus and wrote some of their early demo stuff to barely co-writing until load and being one of the greatest lead guitar players of his generation it's not okay okay hang on hang on arguable hang on you talk for a minute i'm gonna pull up uh ride the lightning sure go ahead he's got very few credits i love that as my album he's got very few credits die by my hand is one of his that riff dun, 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 that's his um some of it's his most of it's not fade to black he has a writing credit because he did the harmony solo with james a lot of it's not him it's just not his work um so honestly i would i would argue that the work on that album was more of the band that he joined rather than his band yes Um, yes so master of puppets is then his band and it's his solos and it's his parts and he co-wrote certain things but yeah you know i think he's it's interesting to see that like the wah thing that he never used he resisted using a wah and bob rock had to talk him into putting one on inner sandman and that's now his freaking trademark okay how many co-write credits do you think he has on lightning eight tracks less than four he has four okay i should have said four or less but okay they're not they're not the best songs except for fade to black Okay, not well, creeping death. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me get back to that because now you hate trapped under ice. I I do hate trapped. I'm sorry. Trapped under ice is it's it's filler. It's not good. I'm sorry. I I will die on this hill. Okay. Uh, he has co-writes on Fade to Black, Trapped under ice, as the the aforementioned creeping death, and wait a minute, hang on. Maybe it's only three. No, I missed one. Also, escape. Mustaine has almost as many writing credits as him. Mustaine only has Cthulhu, Hang on. but but it's almost like only has two. It's almost his song. Like that, that's what I mean. The fact that Mustaine still has writing credits on this album, we only got. I feel like we only got one album of the original Metallica, and it's terrible sounding. Which one? Justice. Is horrendous. No, the, the original quality. Metallica. What are you talking about? Oh, you told the original Metallica. I'm sorry. Yeah. I meant like the classic Metallica. The classic Metallica. The I thank you. I would argue, and I will go to my grave on this. The classic lineup for Metallica is not in the original. It's the Newstead lineup. No. It's yes, not. it is. It's, it's cool. the classic lineup because that's the one everyone remembers. It's the most popular. I'll disagree. I think you have you to. You can disagree all you want, but 30 albums. million albums does yeah, not lie. 
I don't care about the sales. The flawlessness of the albums is what matters. The, the no, the sales <clears throat> is what determines the classic lineup. Not pre- not my preference. Not I don't agree. Preference. I don't agree. Chicago, who I love and adore, has incredible sales in the eighties. No, they have no classic lineup. That is untrue. Just no. They look. I love Chicago. Mm. I can start ripping their records off the wall here. They don't have a classic lineup. They Danny Seraphine and Terry Calf are not in most of those in the eighties and nineties. Or seventies. Away, they're in the sixties and seventies. Seraphine was fired at one point for going with the producer who they fired, Terry met his demise unfortunately okay regardless let's 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 truck this back a little bit so binge and purge is incredible they they finished 93 they head into 94 and i think you said last time they were supposed to start making a new record at that point and they didn't they went back on the road again they went on the yeah because then in 94 they came to town and I thought I was going to be able to go, but this is at the time when uh, concerts started beginning to sell out, like, as a matter of course. When we were growing up, that wasn't a thing. And then, you know, Ticketmaster and Ticketron and all that stuff becomes so much more popular that people are able to start buying tickets in advance. <clears throat> that tour was um, Metallica, Danzig, and Suicidal, Suicidal Tendencies. Tendencies. Uh, let me say, I've still, in 2021, not seen Danzig. You're not missing much now. You know what? It doesn't matter. It, it's not about now. I, I would go if he came, even though it's he's not. He's probably going to do, he's going to continue to do the Misfits. It looks like at least a few more times. He still has yet to go to Europe. There's a lot of money on the table. You think they're going to tour? I mean, they haven't really been touring as much as they've been doing these this is the last one. This is the last one. This is the last right. one. Is it? It's a tour in the way. Look, I don't. I don't care about the misfits. I'm sorry. I, I wish it's I did. Okay. Uh, it's arena shows, first of all. So it's it's not consistent. Con, consistent. They're occasional. They're booked sporadically. There was a yeah, few they, in a row. They play like two or three a year, basically. They had been doing two or three a year. Man, more. They did five the one year. And it looked like it was going to grow. And they haven't gone to Europe, which I was told by somebody with priory knowledge of their inner workings. They are going to try to do European festivals. So I suspect a lot of times when you're hearing about 2022 or 2023 festival headliners in Europe that are not confirmed, it could be them. Danzig wants to retire from touring. He doesn't like touring. He hates it. Honestly, he's not that good live anymore. I love him vocally on records. Um, in his heyday, I would put him up against a lot of people, just his power and uh, ability. I think the mistake of the Misfits reunion is the mistake when you tried to make Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey dance. Shut the fuck up, stand there, and belt out a fucking song. That's what you're great at. Danzig thinks it's 1983, and he's running around the stage, huffing and puffing, and trying to run back and forth and sing like it's a hardcore show in an arena. When he needs to do what Rob Halford does, stand there, read the fucking teleprompter so you get the words right, and sing. Do what you're now, made for. I, I think you just explained to me why I did not enjoy watching uh, Rob Halford in 2000 or watching Rob Halford post Judas Priest reunion on television, but loved hearing it. And I can remember during the, the Metallica 30th anniversary concerts when in the few songs they had with, with Danzig up there, 
he sounded like he had been running. Because he's running back and forth. It's his shtick. He wants to be pumped up and have that vibe, and I appreciate him. But he's 60-something years old. He's tubby. Well, what? I mean, shape. The, the Misfits started, they're releasing records in, what, 1980? Yeah, technically, they put out a record in the 70s and an EP or two. Okay, even, look, I'm, I'm not, singles. right, I'm just trying to, like, you know, so let's say 1978. So yeah. we're pushing 45 yeah, yeah. years yeah. of... They were teenagers. He's 60-something. Also, just in general, if you don't like your picture being taken, if you have spray-on hair, if you're out of shape and you have man boobs, wear, don't wear form-fitting goth clothes. Don't well, you wear, know what? Don't get on a stage. I don't want to take him away from being on a stage. Or, okay, okay. Get on a stage in a moo-moo. Well... Just, I mean, you know. Look, I'd wear a moo if I could find one that had Metallica logos on it. Just don't. Just, you can get more flattering clothes. Other bands do. You can. You don't have Look, to you're be. you're in your 60s. You don't have to be sexy. I'm in and, my 40s. I'm not and sexy. And not to mention, entertainment-wise, the new version of the Misfits, you still have Doyle, who is entertaining as fuck, doing the Doyle thing. You have Jerry, who's running all over the place like a young person, sliding up and down the stage. He's enough. He's enough. Do the Lane, do the Lane Staley thing. Just you know, lean back and forth. Yeah, whatever. He just should just stand there and sing. It'd be enough. I mean, that People too. would be thrilled. And it's a shame. So, if Danzig was was supposed to do, and I think they're still playing Psycho Las Vegas. I'm not sure. They were supposed to do. A Lucifuge 30th anniversary tour last year. Whoa. Which I love that album. It's my favorite Danzig album of the day. It's Danzig not my Records. favorite, but I'd have gone. Her Black Wings. I'll put that song up against. No, give me, give me, you know, give me, give me three all day long. Yeah, three's good. So he was supposed to do that. Anyway, I'm sorry, just real quick. The irritating thing is I, I didn't see him. I've never seen Danzig he, in any capacity live. If he does the solo tour, go see him. I will. Um, It'd be worth it. I'll hate watch it, but I'll go. Well, be worth it. No photos, no cell phones out. You'll be thrown out. Just the one. Okay, fair enough. His security guards are intensely huge, threatening, and violent to anybody. Hmm. And nobody at a Live Nation venue will even fuck with them. So you don't want to even try. Um, I don't so take the, photos at shows. So Metallica, Binge and Purge comes out. They return to touring. They tour. They do Green Hell with... Danzig, Suicidal, Mike comes on stage and does a Metallica song. I think they did occasionally a song with Suicidal, War Inside My Head or something. And then... You just made it worse for me. I know. Woodstock 94. You should close with Woodstock 94. I attended Woodstock 94. It was epic. Um, I didn't know what I was getting into. I was trying not to fall in the mud. I totally fell in the mud a bunch of times. I'm going to tell a story when there's a break. Up until a couple of years ago, those shorts from Woodstock 94 still fit me. I don't know if that's a testament to just being large or fluctuating my weight or whatever. But um, it was an amazing time. They were the headliner of the entire Woodstock. Woodstock. That's insane. Headlined over Aerosmith. That Nine Inch Nails. That that puts them with Jimi Hendrix 
and Creedence Clearwater Revival. And okay. Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Look, I love CCR, but that's not okay. Well, well they were Friday. Real headline. quick, my story about Woodstock. Go ahead. In 1993, I'm at the Quick Stop or the Easy Stop next across the street, getting from high school, getting some ramen, and I'm like, "Hey, dude, Woodstock 25. You want to go with me? It'll be in Woodstock, Illinois." And that's the story. Oh, Woodstock, Illinois. No, it won't. Um, no, it was not. It, it, it was, was not. not in Woodstock, New York. It was in Saugerties. Uh, Saugerties, which is not quite Woodstock or Bethel, but um, is it what was, it is. It was an experience. I don't regret going. I had a wonderful time. I came back to find out that my beloved grandmother had had a stroke. She passed away a few weeks later while I was. You know, like uh, like the, the lyrics to Alive, while well, you were somewhere off, your daddy was dying. Well, I was like drinking grape Kool-Aid and vodka out of a canteen watching Green Day and King's X. Uh, my grandma was having a stroke, unfortunately. But um, sorry you didn't see him. Anyway, um, they were the at that point the biggest band in the world. That includes Nirvana rejected the chance to play Woodstock. Allison Chains had to drop out because Lane was messed up, broke a leg, sort of, or something else, drugs. Nine Inch Nails took their spot and did the iconic mud set. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think the Red Hot Chili Peppers closed Woodstock Sunday night. They were also at the pinnacle for them. Blood Sugar Sex Magic, the year before One Hot Minute. And if you saw Metallica play for two and a half hours, and Aerosmith had to go on after them, which they were brilliant, but like, wow. Whoa. Yeah, Metallica was the headliner. Aerosmith went on last. Well, the thing the about rain. that, I mean, it's not, it's not even fair. It wasn't fair, except, Woods, except that Aerosmith put on the absolute best show I ever saw them do. Really? Yeah, they were unbelievable. They covered uh, Zeppelin. They did like a 10 minute version of Walking the Dog with all these blues song classic call outs like Smokestack Lightning and things like that. And uh, Manish Boy, they did a Peter Gunn, they did a fantastic job. They I apologize. My daughter just gave me three fake outs and not, uh, not Knuckles. Okay. So, and look, see, okay, real quick, I just want to throw words out there. I wasn't there, so I don't know. But we're talking about Metallica in their prime. Mm. And and Aerosmith on hole twelve. Mm-hmm. Let's be real. Let's call a thing what it is. Yeah, yeah. I love Aerosmith. I, I love maybe, them. Maybe even hole fifteen. No, let's be fair. Uh, pump and they're on yeah. pump. Oh no, they were oh, on. They were on uh, oh, that terrible, stupid Sony record. Uh, get, get a, a grip. grip. Right before Nine Lives. Nine Lives was okay. Pretty good cut about three or four songs off that you got a pretty good record but get a grip was awful and but they're beginning the back they're not even i mean they're, they're halfway through the back nine at this point and you've got metallica who are what 26 27 at this time it might have been 30 i mean it's, it's james was born no james ago, was born in uh 63 65 you're right you're right they're in their seven years ago so they're about 30s yeah Jason had cut his hair, by the way, which people were appalled at. He sang lead on Seek and Destroy and I think Creeping Death, and James backed him up. Uh, Kurt, on that tour, he did leads on 
Seek and Destroy all the way through. Lots of Whiplash and about half yeah. of Seek and Destroy. Whiplash, Seek and Destroy. Yeah, the second half of Seek and Destroy. James Kurt, was on record at that time saying that he thought the lyrics to Whiplash were stupid. Yeah, he was mad at himself. Um, I mean, he was 12 when he wrote it. I mean, it's funny. Yeah, something like that. Also, Kurt had some interesting dreadlocks. But if you... Oh, was, that was if, the, the, the aborted dreadlock era. If you had told me that Metallica was going to walk off that triumphant stage... And 16 months later, or 18 months later, they would be an almost unrecognizable band. I would not have believed you. And that's the setup to our next episode. No, I, I, I'm going to set it up. You go ahead. What the hell was that? And thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>